Um, it has been six months and a, or a semester and a half. And uh, we didn't expect that it would take this long to get through this transition, but we started out this transition period saying something. We said that we were going to wait until God provided us with the right campus minister. And so we're still involved in the search. And we interviewed a great couple in February, and some of you got to meet them, a couple named uh, Evan and Danielle Saxton. And they took an opportunity in Kentucky. And we're still on good terms with them. And we still love them, and they've been a blessing to us. But that wasn't God's will. And I'll just let you know this today, because uh, I want you to know that... uh, these sort of things are still going on. We're still trying to discern what God is doing. We've got a uh, couple coming in in two weeks. It'll be the weekend of May 15th. And we interviewed two other couples today uh, on, on Skype. And uh, Barry Owen and Ted Knight were there to assist with that. They're the two elders that, uh, as Barry said uh, in our interview, they're the scouts. And uh, they're, they're out talking to these people. And I'll tell you this, it's it's um, nobody wants this transition to last too long, but what you do is you learn in the transition to trust in God, and you learn to enjoy the journey, because here's the thing, we'll end up picking one of these candidates, perhaps, or maybe there's someone else we don't even know about yet, and we're going to trust that God's going to find that person, but we're getting to meet some great people along the way. We're getting to talk to some interesting people who are doing some interesting things. And furthermore, as, uh, as Wyatt mentioned, this group is learning to be leaders on their own. And, and it reminds us that we're not dependent upon somebody in staff to take care of things. Hey, folks, we're responsible for discipleship no matter how many ministers we have or who's there. I mean, you, you, we are still disciples, and there's still a lot of teaching, there's still a lot of outreach, and we don't have to wait on those things People who are in that position just maximize the work of others. So I want to commend this group as well for their leadership and their dedication, for their passion. And um, if you haven't met, because I know you haven't met some of our, our newest people who are going to be here in the, in the fall, and, and they're exciting me. I appreciate the, all of you being here too. And some of them are graduating. And, um, you know, we, we, don't, we don't want that. But that's what happens. People graduate. They move on to the next level. And they're going to do great things in this congregation and in other congregations. One of the things that I love about campus ministry is that it reminds us that at every point in our lives, we are always in transition. Where did we get this idea that we can just be disciples and put it in park? Enlighten me on this. But where did we get the idea... That, that we could just say, hey, I'll tell you what, we'll go to this church, and we'll have those people in that church, and they'll do these things, and we won't ever have to worry about it again because nothing will ever change. If you know of such a church and you've been there, please let us know because the rest of us want to attend there. It doesn't happen that way. Look at the stories in Scripture. Where do all the interesting things happen to Israel when they're being formed? Where did, I, I want answers, okay? We're interactive in here. Where did they get the Ark of the Covenant? Where did that happen? Now, come on, y'all are the seasoned group. You know the answers to this. Well, they didn't go down to Walmart and purchase an Ark of the Covenant, did they? Okay, where did did the Ark of the Covenant, where did that come about? Yeah, Sinai, they're going through the desert, right? They're not there yet. Where'd they get the law? Sinai, Sinai, in the desert, okay? 
Where, where do they get manna? In, in the desert, okay? Uh, well, wait a second. So when they get to the promised land, remember, they're, they're coming out of Egypt and they're going to the promised land. When they get to the promised land, then what happens? Sin, okay. Yeah, they start forgetting. It's on the journey. It's at 40 years in the wilderness. That's where all the interesting stuff happens. That's where they start to develop. That's where they get their identity. Campus minister reminds, me, reminds us that we're always in some state of transition. It's been 14 years that we've been involved in this thing that we call the Lions for Christ, reaching out to the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith. I've only been here 13. When I got here, a campus ministry was already in place. And I know that there was work that went on before that. But for a year, you had committed to the full-time work of a campus ministry for one year. And it's one of the things that excited us about this congregation because we saw that you saw the possibility of going across the street and doing mission work there. And uh, I've looked back, and I, I believe that we can identify seven periods of growth in the campus ministry. That first period was the startup period. For the first seven years, we were just figuring this out. What does it take? How, how do we have a campus ministry? What's a campus minister supposed to do? Well, what are we going to do with the people who are connected to it? We had the champions for campus ministry at that time identified as people who would help us with that mission. How are we going to reach across the street? There were a lot of things that we were putting into place then that we don't continue to do now because the situation has changed. But we were starting it up. We were just figuring out what it meant for West Ark to have a campus ministry and for other congregations to help us in that and for us to share in that mission. And then for the next seven years, we have a phase that I, I like to call the build-up phase. Now, it was in 2009, and by the way, there's a video on West Ark's uh, YouTube page. You can find it. We can, some of you may not know this story. But there was a day, and by the way, I shared it with this group recently. And, and, and you know, in 2009, how old were you guys? What? 16? Okay, so Taylor was 16, 15, 16. You know, and they didn't know this story, but they, they're the legacy. They've inherited what happened then. Some of you will remember that we kept looking for a campus house. And, um, you know, it was... You know, well, do you want one here? It was kind of like green eggs. Will you have one here? Will you have one there? It's like green eggs and ham, you know. I don't want one there. I don't want one here. We kept looking for a campus house. And then the people next door said, we'll sell it to you. And we knew that the university was going to grab that property if we didn't. But we had to raise funds in 30 days. And you answered the call. And the first people to do that were college students. They were the first ones to say, we will give. And the rest of it followed, and the Lord provided. And there were other things that we started doing to build up uh, who we were, the logo, the identity, the uh, connections on campus. I believe we're in another seven year, we're at the beginning of another seven-year growth phase. And I'd like to call this one Reach Out, because the opportunities are there for us to reach out. That, that our mission in having a campus ministry has not just been to create like we said this morning in the sermon it's not just to create a bubble and to put these young people in it for four years and to protect them and to make sure that safety is the watchword and they never have to do anything but 
Instead, what it is is to make them our lead missionaries, and they're going to, they're going to go on campus, and we're going to follow. And, and we need them to do that because they have the connections. They know people over there. They will meet people. They'll meet their peers over there, and they'll have an influence. And this is the time, like we've always taught them and like we've encouraged one another, you have the opportunity to influence other people. I'm excited about this next seven-year phase. And depending on when God blesses us with a campus minister or not, it's begun, and we're starting it even now. And we want to encourage them to show us the way on campus, to show us where the doors are open, to show where God is leading them. And I'm going to tell you this, they are equipped to do this in a lot of ways. Because things have changed in 30 years. And I've been thinking, doing this has made me think about my history and my story in campus ministry. We always think about the technological changes. And that is a 30-year-old cell phone on the screen. That is what a cell phone was like in 1987. And, um, you know, hey, that was pretty good for 1987. Uh, you, you, know, you were kind of unique if you had one. Um, I always had, well, I didn't have one. You know, I saw one, but pay phones. That's what we had pay phones for. You didn't need to you didn't need to talk and text while you were driving. I mean, who that thing can't even text. So, that thing's strictly a phone. But it's not the technological changes that are the most interesting changes in 30 years. What has changed in 30 years? I think one of the changes that we're very aware of are values. Values have changed. What was once considered the fringe is now considered normal. In 1987, things that were maybe considered out there or odd or unusual, now that's normal. These days it seems like sometimes there is no normal. But listen, if you were there in 1987 along with me, you remember that in 1987 we were looking back 30 years ago and we were saying what has changed in the last 30 years and, and, and what were the things that we were worried about then? And yet here we are now another 30 years later, and we're concerned about that. Now, we can lament for a culture that we will not be able to return to. We can choose to live in the past and say that our goal is to bring it back to 1987. And I remember that in 1987, some people said the goal was to get it back to the 1957 situation. In fact, I remember that my father used to tell me that 1957, and he was specific, he said 1957 was a very good year. He remembers that year fondly. And uh, I don't have time for that story, but he remembers that year. Nostalgia is one thing, and it's good to, to have happy memories and to remember a simpler time, but you can't go back. The verse that Wyatt read from 1 Peter 2.11 says, You live as exiles in this world. That no land has ever been our homeland. That we are always living in a country that's not our own in some sense. Now rather than lament how much things have changed, why don't we just do what Scripture has always called us to and live as exiles? And that was the first century. In Peter's time, when he's writing that, thousands of years ago, he's telling them, don't settle in to this world, but live as exiles who are waiting for a more permanent home, who are looking for a lasting city. You're going to be aliens. You're going to be outsiders. You're going to live lives differently, but you're still going to live among them. In fact, P 
Peter says, live your lives in such a way that people notice. This group is especially equipped to do that. My generation and up, and again, I base this simply on my own experience, and if you feel differently, that's fine. But I want you to think about this. My generation and up, we can remember where the culture supported our Christian values. We can remember how that was embraced. And, and, and you could have you know, Christians of different brand names and types, and, and, and you could even have people who didn't necessarily wear any particular religion on their sleeve, but the values were held in common and were understood. What I love about these guys is they didn't grow up with that same kind of insulation that you and I did. And yet, they're believers. They're faithful. They're strong. Do we understand that that doesn't make them less equipped to the task? It makes them more equipped. They know what it's like to live as exiles. They know what it's like to live as people who navigate a culture that's not necessarily their own. In 1987, I went to Scotland. And while we were in Scotland, I I was there representing the Razorbacks for Christ, that campus ministry. And um, we went over there, the 12 of us who went from that group, and first mission trip I'd ever been on. uh, And we met these kids in, uh, in and around Glasgow, Scotland. And they were used to campaign groups coming through from the Christian colleges. So they asked us, they would say, so, uh, you know, which, which college are you from? Are you from, are you from Harding? You know, we're like, no, no. Okay, and then the, the, one, the question we really loved is, is they said, so University of Arkansas, is that a Christian school? We're like, no. Uh, even in 1987, we, we knew that it was full-on pagan. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, 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 it was full-on secular, even in 1987. And we thought, well, okay, we're embarrassed having to answer that. But at the end of that mission trip, those students, our peers, said to us, we always thought that it was easy for you to be Christians. They understood that we lived in a Christian bubble. And at the Christian schools, we, they, they, saw, they thought that people who were at the Christian schools were in something of a Christian bubble. But when we told them that we had no such bubble at the University of Arkansas, they were convicted. And I remember many of them saying, you've taught us, because in in Glasgow in 1987, being a Christian was not a given. That's not the Bible Belt. They were already moving full on into secularism in the 1980s in Great Britain. And now you could say, my friend Scott Carnes, who was just here, did the men's retreat for us. He'll tell you that he just got back from Ireland. And it's completely secular in that culture. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and again, it's, it's not that they're bad people. It's just that you cannot take for granted the values that you and I cherish are embedded in the culture in the same way. This is the first generation in America that may live fully in an America that's like that. Now, you and I can lament that. I'm not happy about that. I'm not excited about that. But that may be what happens. And if that does happen, God's people are still called just to be as faithful. Now, we have an opportunity right now to equip them and to support them for that kind of a future. Or we can just sit around and fold our hands and lament for a time that will not come back to us. 
living as exiles. We're equipped. We can do this, people. It's what we do. Move ahead a few years from 1987 to 1991. In 1991, Karen and I were living in Abilene then, and you remember that's when the, the Gulf War started, the first Persian Gulf War. Uh, many of us were probably sitting at our dining room tables, and you know, if you had the news on or you were sitting there watching the news, we saw the war start on TV. My father was the... Um, uh, he was, in, he was in the Army at the time. He was at the 362nd in Fayetteville. And I remember reading in the Northwest Arkansas Times because somebody went to interview him, and it was the first time that we had the idea that our citizen soldiers were going to be involved in a conflict. We hadn't really had that for a while. I mean, before that, you roll back and you look for something, and you had Grenada in 1983. Not quite the same. And before that, you had the Vietnam conflict. But this was the first time that something like that was going to happen. And so I remember the reporter asked my father a question. She said, well, what will all of you do here if this gets started up? This is right before it got started. And my dad, in his way, and this is just, you know, if you've met him, this is just how he answers things. He said, we're just going to do our job. This is what we do. This is what we train for. It was a really simple answer for him. It's what they did. And whereas, you know, many people were getting anxious about this, like, oh, no, what's the Army going to do if we go to war? Well, we're going to do our job. Folks, this is our calling. This is what we do. The second thing that's changed in 30 years is a loss of hope. That's debatable, I know, but maybe it's just because I'm getting older. But I do sense that in 2016 and looking ahead, we're a lot less hopeful about things than we were 30 years ago. And maybe 30 years ago, we were a lot less hopeful than we were 60 years ago. I don't know. But this is an opportunity for us to be light in darkness. That's what we do. That's what we train for. You don't need a flashlight in a well-lit room. You, 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 well, now maybe you do, you know, I mean, but if the room is really well-lit, you don't have to have another light. We are called to be light in darkness. It's what we do. We don't have to be nervous about this. In that verse, again, in 1 Peter 2, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. We have been called out of the darkness and into the light. We're ready for this, people. We're trained for this. And we don't have to have the affirmation or support of the culture to do that. This generation is kind of geared into that. Plus, losing hope is, it doesn't sound good. But if what people are losing hope in are things they never should have put their hope in in the first place, then maybe that's not so bad. Whenever we put our hope in things that will not last, we're never really going to have the true hope that you have in Christ. Where is our hope? If you want to take a look at 1 Peter 3.15, that's the other verse there. That verse is the one where Peter says, always be prepared to give someone an answer when they ask you about the hope that they see in you. Now, we're big on having an answer to those who ask us a question. But that doesn't mean that we're going to have a scorecard list of answers so that when somebody asks us something, we know how to answer it. In some ways, we've treated that as if it's, uh, as if it's sort of a crib sheet for a big test. Like, you know, 
who won the 1927 World Series? I got the answer to that. Hold on just a second. You, you know, uh, what do you have to do to know this? What do you have to do to know that? People aren't looking for just information. Peter says they're going to ask about your hope. Well, before they ask the question, they've got to see the hope. Are we able to get them to ask the question just by displaying hope? Again, if Christians are as afraid as everyone else, then they're not going to be asking us about hope. If we're just as despairing as anybody else, they're not going to ask us about that. Our college-age generation knows what it's like to be marginal Christians, just like it was in the first century. A marginal Christian is someone who isn't necessarily you know, at the center and given the most favored status. These days, people don't, you know, if you talk about being spiritual, that can mean many things. It can mean a lot of different things. Um, and by the way, when you encounter people from different cultures, they're going to ask questions, but they might not necessarily be asking it from a Christian perspective. And we've got that opportunity next door, people. It's there. We've got international students next door. The world is literally across the street. A few years back, we had an opportunity to work with students who were coming here. They wanted to work on their English. I spoke to a couple of students from Saudi Arabia. They're Muslims. But they wanted to know about Christianity. They were seriously interested. They were seriously curious. They wanted to know why we did the things we did, why we believed the things we believed. I don't have to know everything about their, you know, why they're asking that question to not realize that that's a wonderful opportunity to talk to people about the hope that we have. And it's not just answers to their questions like we're on Jeopardy. It's answers to their questions about hope. If we don't have the hope, then how can we really talk to them about anything that matters? These students have grown up in a world where Christianity is one of many options. And yet they've chosen Christ. They've grown up in a world where people have lost faith in things that we may have put our faith in. I think they're especially equipped, and this is our chance, our opportunity, not only to support them and to encourage them, but to learn from them. And by the way, they can be our agents and work in partnership with us. We were on a uh, conversation, online conversation, with one of those candidates today, and, uh, I, you know, I, I said this to them, and I want you to hear this as well. I don't know of many congregations that have the missions IQ that this congregation has. If you combine the total of the missions experience and the missions wisdom in this congregation, I'd stack that up against any other congregation you can think of. I mean, it's, it's great. We have people who've lived in the mission field. We have people who, who still work in the mission field. We have people who've gone to different missions locations. And there's a mission field right over here with people from many nations. Why haven't we seen <laughs> the possibility of wedding those two? That's a talent that I don't want to see us bury in the dirt. Now, you will be the ones who will help bridge that gap because you know the international students over there and you need to get to know these people and you need to get to know them and then you get us match made together. Get these international students to meet the people who have this great talent and wisdom. And it might be that's just, that's just international students. There's all sorts of other opportunities over there if we'll pay attention to it. But we can't 
give in to the despair that comes because there's so much change in 30 years. I can promise you this about the next 30 years. There's going to be change. But we can have hope. In the second century, Christianity is not even 100 years old yet. In the second century, there's a letter written to a man named Diognetus. The one who writes it is just called the disciple. And, and I, I love that because he's not just a Christian. He's not just a church attender. He's a disciple. And he's explaining to Diognetus what these Christians, his brothers and sisters, are like. He says they live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. Are we prepared to live in such a world? We might be able to learn from the generations that are coming what that looks like. And yet we might have some ways that we can extend some wisdom that will help them understand what that's like. Because I bet at one time or another, each and every one of us, at some point in our life, has felt like an exile, has felt like a stranger, an outsider. And yet we had the strength and the help to endure that situation. We've got stories to share so that we can ensure that, that other Christians will keep doing what we're called to do. I want to ask you in conclusion to remember these things. You're, you're so faithful in praying for the ministries of this church. We always have the back-to-school blessing. Some of these might be the ones that you're praying for. i got three areas where I want you to keep the lines for Christ in your prayers. Pray for those opportunities to reach out on campus. Some of you may know what they are. And by the way, you don't have to run every opportunity through me or the elders. That's a God-given thing. If you see an opportunity, work with it. Work with it. Find out whoever you need to to work with you. Um, but there's all sorts of opportunities that we can take advantage of. And yes, the campus will work for us. They're our best friends. They're our neighbors. But pray that we see the opportunities to reach out and that we will act on them. Secondly, pray for the, our connections with new students. We've got incoming Christian students. We want them to be our disciple makers. And we've got incoming non-Christian students. They're the ones that we want to be disciples. And in the Lions for Christ, we're taking that mission statement right there, making disciples for Jesus, and we want to focus that specifically in this process of reaching out to people who will make decisions about their faith. And finally, pray for this process of hiring a campus minister. And let me ask you to add something to that. Don't just pray that we hire a campus minister and then we can all breathe a sigh of relief and it's all done. And poor old Benjamin doesn't have to deal with this anymore. Hey, I'm kind of, I'm, I kind of don't, I don't want to let go of it. You know what? I don't know. I mean, you know, everybody, well, we got other stuff for you to do. I've always got something to do. Don't worry about that. Okay? There's always something. Besides, you've got something you need to be doing too, and I want you to keep doing that. You do so many good works, all of you. Oh, uh, But don't just pray that we get a campus minister and then it's just all Okay. Pray that when we do bring a campus minister, now listen to this, listen to this, okay? I'm serious. When we get a campus minister in here, what Wyatt described to you, that they do not lose that sense of doing what they need to do. 
that they don't, I mean, it's okay if some of us do that, but don't let them just relax and say, okay, you're the campus minister, you take care of things. No. Because we've got four, maybe five years with this group to teach them what it's like to be a leader. And we don't want them ruined on the idea that being a Christian means sitting in a pew. We want them to know that they've got gifts and talents and it can be used and that a minister just helps them do what they need to be doing anyway. Keep that in your prayer as well, okay? I'm excited about this. I'm encouraged, I'm, I'm hopeful, and I want you to be too. Um, we're going to close out with uh, this last song. What is it, Hayden? What number? 749. 749. Okay, we're going we're gonna to sing this song. And if you need to partake of communion, that's prepared in room 100. And after we sing this song, Chancey Smith will lead us in prayer and we'll be dismissed tonight. Let's stand up and let's sing together.